Well, I was born in 1969, so I actually think May 13, 1969, I think there may have been human beings walking on the moon when I was born. I'm not, exa- I'm not 100% sure about that, but it was around that time that the moon landing was. But very tumultuous years, you can, you know. Hello, I'm Mark Standish, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, where I'm a junior member. In this podcast, we get together to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We want Critical Faith to give you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. Each week, we will invite past and present members of ICS and friends of the Institute to join us. We'll ask them to share their journey in scholarship and how it connects to their faith and their lives. I'm Danielle Yet, and I'm also an ICS junior member. Joining us again today, we have ICS president and associate professor of philosophy of religion, Ron Kuypers. Not so long ago, Ron talked to us about his time as an undergraduate. This week, he's back to continue sharing his academic journey with us. We'll welcome him back to the podcast a bit later in the program. That gets us to our first segment this week. Don't miss this. In this segment, we highlight all kinds of things that we don't want you as our listeners to miss. New books and articles in philosophy, theology, and current affairs, important events and anniversaries in these same worlds and in the church year, and every now and then, an event at the Institute for Christian Studies. So Mark, give us the down low. What should we not miss out on? Well, this one's actually in Toronto this time, which is uh, yay for Toronto. Um, On Monday... April 8th, 2019, at 7 p.m. at the Opera House. Um, The Antlers are playing. The Antlers are a band um, that does like lo-fi singer-songwriter stuff where uh, lo-fi is where the audio quality is intentionally not as um, pristine um, and things that are seen as imperfections are left in the recording. Um, and they use a lot of synths, um, and a weird mix of synth and acoustic guitar. And it's, um, and it's like pretty slow. Um, but the album hospice is amazing and it came out 10 years ago and they are doing a 10 year anniversary, um, tour and there was a Toronto date just added. So before they didn't have one, but they're going around doing small venues in North America 
and um, playing through from front to back the album Hospice. And so I'm really excited because I love the album. It's really the only stuff of theirs that I love, but I really love that album. And so I'll be there and uh, you might see me there if you come out. Party it up with the antlers. Oh, yeah. It'll be a party. It's very sad music. So very big party. My don't miss this is churchier related and it's the sad time of the church here hmm. is coming up very this week actually uh and lent lent starts hmm. on starts on wednesday and me and my melancholy soul hmm. lent is my favorite time of the church year in a strange way me too and somebody actually from our community just shared a reading plan mm-hmm. for the season of lent um, apparently Pete Rollins, who is a Irish, Irish public intellectual yes. atheist. No, he's not an atheist. He's a Christian. He's a Christian. Um, but he sees Jesus as the quintessential atheist where Jesus on the cross, because he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is the one who truly knows what it is to live without God. And so he, in his idea of atheism for Lent, which is a reading list to go through and read a bunch of things that atheists have written, is to be sympathetic or understand the place better that Jesus is in um, when he's on the cross. Identify with Jesus when he's on the cross. Yeah, so much of Lent, so much of what I love about Lent is it is a lot more explicitly uh, about that kind of living into and like imagining putting yourself in the place of this dark night of the soul mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. is so much a part of the Christian narrative and there's the having that be a regular part of the rhythm of church life I think is really important. For our second segment, we want to give you a glimpse of what it's like to be critically faithful in a graduate school of philosophy, theology, and interdisciplinary studies like ICS. We're continuing to map the journey from being an undergraduate student to being a professor of philosophy or theology. This week, we'll ask Ron to continue telling us about his academic journey. This time, we're highlighting the time he spent here at ICS as a graduate student. So welcome, Ron. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Before we jump in, how about a bit of a warm-up question? What are you reading at the moment? I don't really have a great answer for this. <laughs> um, over the Christmas holidays, I got two books. Uh, I got the Beastie Boys book from my son, Benjamin, and uh, I could not put that down, actually. It's an 800-page feast for the senses. It's not all text, but, uh, you know, goes through their whole career. And uh, I'm a big fan of that band. And then another book I got was um, the Jeff Tweedy's memoirs called uh, Let's Go So We Can Get Back. And um, I'm also a big fan of him and his bands, uh, Uncle Tupelo and Wilco. So, um, and uh, so yeah, just reading those uh, kind of, that was my good Christmas reading, um, you know, just sort of 
sit in your pajamas around the house, not yeah. doing too much. I had a, that's, that's my favorite kind of Christmas holiday, so I did that. What I'm reading sort of more philosophically is I don't get to do as much of that these days as um, now that I'm my role's more heavily administrative, but I am in a political theology reading group, and we try to stay pretty active through the year and meet you know, every other month or so. And when the school year starts, we might get one meeting in a semester, but we meet more intensely over the summer. And so next week we're, well, we're either going to meet next week or in during reading break. We haven't settled on a date yet, but the uh, philosopher we picked to read is an Italian philosopher of religion, Catholic named Augusto del Noce. I didn't know much about him uh, other than that uh, my friend, who, um, ICS Senator and Ryerson Philosophy Professor uh, John Caruana recommended that we read him. So he's his dates are 1910 to 1989, uh, and he really uh, sort of came to prominence in the interwar period as a as a scholar of early modern philosophy, like Enlightenment, Descartes, and stuff. So it's from that he has a really interesting take on the relationship between Enlightenment, progressivism, liberalism, atheism, secularism, and uh, their links to, uh, so he was, you know, he's a, a, a trenchant critic of both fascism and communism and Marxism. So um, we're reading a paper from him called uh, Tradition and Innovation, I think it is. And those are sort of I'm, I'm, I'm really curious to see what he says. He seems like a kind of a Catholic conservative, but a really super intelligent one. You know, French philosophers like Etienne Gilson really loved his stuff on Descartes and Malebranche. And anyway, so, um, the, the, and I'm kind of, I'm, I'm definitely skeptical of what, the, of the Enlightenment progress myth as uh, the un unfettered use of reason is just going to lead to better and better outcomes for humanity. I don't believe that at all. So I'm with the skeptics like Wittgenstein on that. And then liberals will right away uh, label you a conservative or a reactionary for that reason. And I, I think that's too simplistic. Uh, uh, the, the, the critical theorists like Walter Benjamin were also, uh, you know, they were strongly Marxist, but also strongly uh, skeptical of the modern progress myth. And that whole idea of what, um, you know, so a faith in technology, faith in science, you know, not that these are bad things in and of themselves, but they can become idols or fetishes. And so I think that's kind of what he's, I'm, I've just, Danielle, when she came to get me for this interview, was standing by the door for a minute. And uh, I, she, she says, wow, you're really into it because I didn't look up and <laughs> notice her for about a minute. So anyway, so it's, yeah, it's going to be interesting, but that's what I'm reading. That's what I'm precisely reading right now. I have a couple of books on the go that I've I put down and get back to. I'm really trying to read this book on uh, on evolution called Evolution in Four Dimensions by Eva Lam and the other authors Jablonska, I think is the last name or whatever. And it was a book that was recommended to me as it's probably a little dated now, but sort of giving you the latest sort of um, I'm really interested in. Uh, evolution and what it says about who we are as humans um, and and wanting to get into sort of more uh, recent non-reductionistic versions of evolutionary theory and this one talks about other dimensions of evolutionary development than just natural selection right so um, so anyway that's that's another book I'm reading a book on uh, on Islam I don't have it on me right now and I can't remember the title so anyway but uh, there's a few things floating around in my book bag that <laughs> like that are make me feel guilty on a daily basis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's okay though. Um, 
I have this weird theory. I've, I've heard other scholars say this, is that you'll read it when you need to or it'll find you when you need to. I think we're a little too anxious about having uh, either encyclopedic expertise in an area or um, of doing exhaustive research. And I mean, some people can work that way. And um, I'm sort of like, you know, um, I'm more like uh, Merrill Westfall when he, he, uh, he said this funny joke once. Guy's hilarious, by the way. If you ever hear him talk in uh, public, go see it because he's always good for cracking a few jokes. But he says, "Well, Ron, you can't be a philosopher if you can't talk about books you haven't read." <laughs> so, <laughs> well, that's from Merrill Westfall. So you know, I can uh, anyway. But uh, and we won't talk about the books that I talk about but haven't read because there's a few of those too. <laughs> if you do philosophy for any length of time. Say you've never, you know, I'm not saying, well, I might as well confess to it, you know, have never sat through uh, Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit yeah. from beginning to end. You, you've read enough about it and about people saying things about it that it doesn't excuse you from, I would never write a paper on it without reading it or something like that. But you can have an intelligent conversation about the ideas in yeah. there by now, right? So anyway, I think that's what he meant. There's so, so many people too that yeah. write good stuff that like, yeah. you just can't read it now that's the other thing. It's sort of like uh, you have to let go of that yeah. anxiety, right? So, anyway. <laughs> I could read more than I do, but for, for a philosopher, way more. Like, I know there's other people who read way more than I do. You know, who wouldn't have spent their Christmas reading books on pop culture, put it that way. <laughs> so, let's get into uh, how you came to be at ICS. Um, what did you want to be when you decided to come to ICS? How did you envision ICS fitting into who you were and what you wanted to do? Yeah, that, what do you want to be when you grow up question. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, this is the joke I always tell about graduate school, especially in the humanities, right? It's uh, when you get your BA and the alarm goes off and you have to face real life, there's a snooze button. <laughs> called graduate school. <laughs> so, you know, the arm goes off, you hit MA two more years, PhD, you know, five to eight more years. <laughs> so that's kind of the joke I make. But, um, and, and taking that same line of thinking more seriously, I did, I, I, uh, I went to the uh, King's College at the time, now King's University for my undergraduate. And um, I realized, you know, it's a long story about how in my undergraduate career, I eventually shifted from being an English major to a philosophy major. I think I might have talked about that before. Um, but then just realizing at the end of undergraduate school that I was really interested in philosophy and had only just really scratched the surface, even if, even if that, right? So I kind of knew for sure I wanted to pursue like a master's degree or a graduate degree. I didn't really know beyond that. Um, I had uh, I had worked for the University of Alberta's student newspaper. I was the entertainment editor of that um, newspaper for a year, and it was a pretty serious paper. We put out, you know, um, 24 to 30 page issues twice a week. It had a readership of about 30,000. Um, and so I, I kind of was between, I was between my sort of academic calling and my more like, uh, interest in music and music journalism and, um, you know, um, getting rejected by Ryerson University's journalism school had something to do with it. Uh, <laughs> that was, I took that as a sign. Maybe I shouldn't have, maybe I should have tried harder, but, uh, but uh, anyway, I, so I, I also had, um, 
my professor at King's was one of my professors at King's was an ICS grad. Vaden House had done a PhD with Hendrik Hart, and uh, didn't exactly encourage me to go, but he was like, "You might want to check that place out. I think it could be for you." And so, uh, so yeah, I did, and um, and uh, I got uh, I only got a conditional acceptance because. King's only had a three-year bachelor's degree at the time, and ICS's requirement was a four-year bachelor's degree. So they, my first year at ICS was uh, probationary. Mm-hmm. So they would, it would either be a qualifying year, or it would, if I did well, they would count it towards um, my MA. And thankfully, they said you did well, and they counted it towards. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would have been well served by a four-year BA in philosophy because I think I would have filled a few more of the bigger gaps yeah. that I had um, at the time, but. Um, but anyway, that was my path, and uh, yeah, so I came in the came in the fall of '92 to start and start at the what's called the Master of Philosophical Foundations, the degree back then. It's an MA now. What were your thoughts coming to ICS? Like, why did you choose ICS beyond being yeah. rejected from Ryerson or <laughs> uh, beyond a professor like mentioning it in your ear, like just the itch that you had? Would you like for for higher education or? Well, you know, it's one of these weird things. Um, I don't have any. I didn't have any romantic attachment to it that a lot of, say, my friends did, whose family were ICS supporters. My yeah. family weren't ICS supporters. They're in fact quite suspicious of what was going on at ICS throughout the seventies and eighties. And but you know, it's it was always there as a like a second uh, plate offering thing. And you're always like, well, what is this place? And then at King's, I found out more about it. Right, and um, I just thought it would be. There, there's a couple of reasons. It's not just. I'm not one of these pure scholars who just has an intellectual curiosity. Um, for me, it was always existential. I had questions about faith, about my tradition, about there were things I didn't like about it. There were things I liked about it. Um, so going to Kings, going to ICS were ways to, uh, you know, f- at least for intellectually gifted people to stay working on your inheritance, to take up a quarrel with your tradition, but in a place where you didn't have to throw out the baby with the bathwater, or you didn't have cynical professors questioning everything. So I think it was part, partly those kinds of reasons where it just felt like the, a good organic next step. You know, I didn't, had, I didn't really want to leave Alberta or Edmonton or move to Toronto or anything like that. I definitely didn't think I'd still be living here, <laughs> you know, um, 27 years later or something like that. But, uh, you know, I'm still an Oilers fan. I'm not, a, unfortunately, I'm not a Leafs fan. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, so it's sort of, um, and, you know, I at King's you had a very nurturing academic experience, you know, a lot of attention from your professors. And I know the difference because I went to the University of Alberta for two years when I worked at the Gateway. And if I didn't volunteer like that, the campus would have, wouldn't have shrunk and become a small place. But you definitely didn't get the attention from your professors like I got at King's. And I knew that that would kind of continue at ICS. And I wasn't disappointed in that. So, um, you know, and then it's just after coming here and doing well and Hank saying to me, like, I really think you should do a PhD or you're, you're someone who I think could do a PhD. And like, you can be the most talented student and I'm, I'm meeting students like this now and they don't know how good they are. And they, um, I don't know if that was my case or not, but it's still kind of like, you have to hear that from someone else. Yeah. Right. So before you kind of think, Oh, I could actually do this. I could actually maybe be a professor someday or something like that. So you, I didn't really, and, and, and just like now the job prospects didn't look good. So you really had to do it because it was worth doing right now for its own sake. That's really important. Like yeah. you, you have to be able to say to yourself, um, you know, I can always, if I need to do this now, it's worth doing, then that'll, that, that'll be its own reward. And if there's no job 
at the end of it, then we can always you can always knuckle down and join the workforce later. But I I, I always looked at it that way. It's like well, how many how many years you get to spend on this sort of eighty, ninety if you're lucky to take ten years to take a decade to just if you're into it to do something you really really love and want to study then that would have to be worth it because you know um so the price we paid for that was you know in a in a really burgeoning housing market we bought a house 10 years later than most people our age so paid more and have a heavier mortgage and things like that but those are all kind of you know i people who go into philosophy to do a phd in philosophy aren't really guaranteed a job so they're not really worried about i mean you don't you want <laughs> you want a job obviously you want to you know be able to pay your student loans back and things like that but uh but it has to be worth doing for its own sake mm -hmm. yeah how did your journey through ICS reinforce shape or change what or who you wanted to be it really felt to me like i was just kind of keep traveling an organic kind of path um you know um yeah, was there any kind of, so I talked before in this interview just about sort of signal moments that um, made me think, aha, I could do this or yeah. something like that. Um, you know, so some profs telling me that I should keep going and all that kind of thing. That was already happening at King's too. So, you know, you, you listen to that, you take that seriously. These are your mentors. These are people who have gone through it. Um, but it was just that continual sort of, uh, progression of being in a nurturing academic environment where you're working on issues of faith and, and reason and, you know, kind of keep working on that. And, uh, yeah, I think it was sort of, I just grew as a person, as a scholar. Um, so it was definitely, um, good for me, my time here, um, uh, as a person and as a scholar, but, um, no, no, like mind blowing epiphanies or, <laughs> <laughs> anything like that yeah how what, what's your experience been like in toronto do you do you like toronto uh yeah i like toronto do you miss edmonton uh i do um and i've i've tried to explain to others and even to myself what it is about um place but i feel a really even after all these years i probably lived more than half my life in more than half my life in toronto by a little bit than in edmonton but where you were born and where you grew up, um, it just, uh, when I go back there, it just feels like home somehow. It feels like, you know, the big sky that you, that greets you, uh, you just don't have that here. Um, the prairies, um, so, uh, there's a really good community back there that I left that was hard to leave, uh, both church and, um, scholarly community. Um, and Toronto is, yeah, Toronto's a great city in so many ways. It's pretty expensive, though, so you don't get to always enjoy everything it has to offer. And I guess as I get a little older, that's changing a bit. My time is freeing up a bit more, and, and we're a bit more sort of financially independent. Um, but I, it, I don't. It, uh, yeah, I don't. I don't really have anything bad to say about Toronto, but it hasn't really um, claimed me mm -hmm. as one of its children I guess or something like that I always it's not like that I feel like an outsider here or anything like that but uh but that sort of deep love that I hear people express for Toronto I'm kind of like I go I like it but it, that's that's missing for me somehow um you know I could I could be one of these people that sees myself not living the rest of my days here or something like that right so but I mean you know having said that 
it's just such a wonderful city. It's very vibrant. There's so much going on, culturally speaking. And uh, it's when you're engaged in that kind of thing. Like ICS has done some really cool events with the uh, Art Gallery of Ontario and with the Toronto International Film Festival. And when you do those kinds of things, then you start to really uh, see, you know, feel what the city has to offer. And um, it's a very friendly city. I mean, you know, uh, in your neighborhood or on the street, people say hi or, you know. And uh, I think one of the miracles about it, but I really don't have a point of contrast, but I think uh, Bob Sweetman talked about this in the uh, Critical Faith episode on Wonder. He experienced a lot of racial strife growing up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and he said that was almost, he was found it miraculous that that's almost completely absent in Toronto. Now, that's not entirely true, but there's a remarkable amount of diversity here and a remarkable amount of civic solidarity within that diversity. So I think it's it's pretty rare globally to have that. So I think that that's something to pay attention to and to kind of appreciate, you know. I mean, my, my, my dad, who's a great guy, he's not alive anymore, but, you know, was a Northern European Christian Reformed guy, and he would go on the subway and he would feel like, a, as a white person, like a minority on the subway in Toronto, and it made him nervous. He didn't, you know, and it was, I kind of, I was like, oh, I didn't notice. Yeah. And honestly, like, it wasn't trying to brag or anything, but it's sort of like, uh, it was just different from from generationally. It was sort of like, this is just Toronto. This is just fine. I mean, you know. What were some things that brought you joy in your time as a student at ICS? Oh, the joy was really um, just bonding with your cohort. I don't know if you guys are experiencing this now, but um when I came in 92, there was actually a pretty strong influ influx of students. There was about, I can't remember exact numbers, but there was about 20 students in the Master of Worldly Studies program. There's about 20 in the MA PhD program. Um, so yeah, just making those really intense friendships in those first year or two that I'm still friends with those folks today, a lot of them. Uh, you know, that's when I met uh, Jeffrey Dudiak from who teaches philosophy at King's University. He's one of my best friends. Um, you know, we played hockey together and, uh, you know, uh, I said at a hockey team back then oh, really? called the Theoretical Pucksters. <laughs> there was a three-team league that played at an outdoor rink called in Greenwood, Greenwood Arena um, near Little India where a lot of um, ICS folks live because that's also where the Instead Housing Co-op is. Anyway, um, which was also started by Christian Reform folks in Toronto. In which I lived in for a decade too, but um, yeah, so it was those kinds of things. Uh, you know, school was school. I liked it, but yeah. uh, it was really, um, yeah, doing, that that definitely brought me joy for sure. Yeah, Jim wasn't on those teams, was he? Yep, oh. <laughs> he was. I played hockey with Jim Altheus a lot. He just hung up the skates only relatively recently. He had a bad rollerblading accident, and then he kind of, you know. He's only 80. <laughs> I hope to be playing hockey when I'm 80. <laughs> I, I so. hope so as well, but I don't believe that I will be. Who knows? <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. Um, what were some of the challenges that you faced as a student at ICS or just in Toronto or moving or whatnot? Uh, I think the biggest challenge for me was when my progress toward the, ach the achievement of my PhD really slowed down. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't sure why. I partly blame ICS's curriculum at the time, uh, but uh, you know. And then I, I got kind of involved in the in the cycling lobby here in Toronto. Came a bit of a, you know, you know, did a bit of activism around that issue and stuff like that. So you know, life starts to kind of um, 
so that was you know that was that was tough when you're kind of um trying to grind it out and you 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 really want to um at least be making progress toward that goal and you feel like you're kind of stuck that was that was tough for sure you know what we owe our students is to um help them make the best progress they can right so um is there any advice that you would give to students finishing their undergrad and considering graduate school or just considering what they're doing afterwards too? Yeah, well, I'm a, I'm a bit trepidatious answering that question because I, t- I have a ton of advice. I just don't know how yeah. applicable it would be. Uh, I do follow the, uh, I'm a Gen Xer, so we're standing on the sidelines watching the uh, baby boomers and the millennials go at it, right, on social media and things like yeah, that. Yeah. So I don't want it to sound like that baby boomers that's you know giving the millennials advice that just doesn't apply anymore because the economic situation is so different, right? Yeah. You know, like uh, I was watching SNL last night and they did a skit on this and it was you know the the uh, the yuppies going, well, I didn't have any student loans because I worked through school, and they said, yeah, but you don't have any student loans because tuition was only three hundred dollars a year back then, and you know that kind of thing. So I don't want to fall into that trap. But anyway, so. Um, for me, it's about, it's always been about, um, even when I became a professor, um, my brother-in-law gave me a book by pa- Parker Palmer called The Courage to Teach. And the, and, the, and the whole thesis of that book was be yourself and you'll be a good teacher. Don't try to be a teach, have a teaching style that doesn't suit your personality. So it's something like you, your discernment process would have to be if you're thinking of graduate school, especially in the humanities. A master's degree is not such a big deal because you could do it in two years, like our master's degree, which is a pretty rigorous one. Um, so that's not a huge commitment in terms of even your own life or financially, right? It's when you do a PhD, that's more serious, as you know, probably, because you worked for a while, right? And then you decided you wanted to go for the PhD. Um, then you've got to really, um, so I always say there's a different discernment process for the MA. If you're just kind of interested in philosophy and you want to do it a little bit more than your undergraduate gave you, then just, you know, no problem. Two more years, just yeah. do it, you know? Like it's, uh, it's the PhD is more serious, right? It's more of an existential life commitment that if you want to actually see it through to the end. Um, but I wouldn't, um, so you really, ha- your discernment process really has to be about what, where you feel called, where you feel your passion and your desire and all that kind of thing, where you're feeling led, where you feel like you could be of service if you went through this path, right? Like um, that it's the kind of thing you need to do. I don't know how to answer that question for anybody, even for myself, but I think you have to sort of take that seriously. And um, I don't, th- I've, you know, there's people who do all kinds of things for the wrong reasons and then it won't really work out because especially in, if you, in the, if you're doing a PhD in philosophy, um, you're on your own in a lot of ways. Even at a nurturing school like ICS, if you don't um, really have that inner fire to do it, it's you're not going to be able to do it, right? Yeah. So um, you have to have that kind of driving you, that kind of motivation, and you have to ask yourself honestly whether or not you have that. I think master's degree is a good, play, good place to find that out. A lot of people will go, okay, I can do this master's degree, but like, no, 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 PhD is not for me, and then and that's fine, right? I also think that if people realize, this is the other thing, that to leave graduate school after having starting it is not a failure, yeah. right? Like some people are like, oh, I'm a grad school dropout or whatever. I and, and that happens and that's happened at ICS and these are very talented, gifted people who've gone on to have amazing careers and all kinds of things. And the time they spent here wasn't wasted and it wasn't a failure. And uh, you know, I always wanna tell people that, like if they think they need to, maybe discontinue this because for whatever reasons that that's you know that's something so 
that can take a lot of pressure off your decision too, right? So, um, you know, you want to maybe try it and then you find out, well, no, that wasn't it, right? So, I mean, I, th I think if you feel like you have a passion and a desire and you feel called, you should give it, give it, give it a chance and then, you know, see where it takes you. Hmm. You spoke about uh, having that like inner fire. Right. Did you know that that you had it when you started at ICS, or or did you even have? Did, is that was that a thing that developed? Or I definitely had existential issues I wanted to work on intellectually. I felt that would help me personally. I don't think that's everybody's motivation for going to graduate school, but you got to have some skin in the game existentially if you want to if it's going to be meaningful, right? That's how, at least that's how I feel about it. Um, uh, so that that was definitely the case for me, right? But that doesn't mean I couldn't have just read books and I don't know. I just I just felt like uh, yeah, you know, some of it's the snooze alarm thing. Some of it's the well, you were getting good grades in this subject and you you seem to really enjoy it. You don't need a lot more than, than a few things like that, and then a few people encouraging you along the way to kind of um, figure it's worth at least exploring, right? And um, but it's scary, right? Like I remember being kind of, especially, you know, hopping, you know, it was my, she wasn't my wife at the time, but we drove cross country to move here together. Um, she was going to the University of Guelph and I was coming to Toronto. So, um, but leaving, leaving everything that was familiar behind, right? Um, it, and I think that's, even if you stay in the same town, there's something about going to graduate school that feels like that, right? Yeah. It's different than just getting a job. Even if you have a steep learning curve on a new job, you kind of know that you're joining the workforce and that you're going to, you know, but this is sort of a more open-ended thing and you don't know what's going to come of it. And, but I think life, you have to take risks like that in life. That's what, that's what makes life worth living. If you always took the defined path where you knew what the goal was or, you know, like you should allow yourself the opportunity to be surprised. Definitely. Yeah, I, I, what I when I started going to grad school, I thought, Oh, no one else has this experience. Like all my friends are are working or whatnot, and don't have this like intense academic experience. I don't mean to disparage that either. No, I mean, if that's what you want. I mean, right? But yeah, yeah. but uh, and that was alienating in a sense, but also like uh, very. I felt very privileged at the same time. Yeah. You know, you've been at ICS for a while at this point. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, what keeps you going? Why, what do you love about this place? This is what I've always said to people through all the trials and tribulations of this place, the financial worries, the cuts in pay and the reductions in staff. Um, I can still honestly say that I'm really lucky to work at a place like this and to have the kind of job satisfaction that I get to enjoy here. I try not to take that for granted. Um, it's almost like, you know, like, well, almost, <laughs> almost want to say like, you know, like a hockey player who's made it kind of thing. Like, um, you know, you almost like, I can't believe they're paying me to do this kind of view. You hear athletes say this once in a while, right? To do the thing you love. So there's a, there's an aspect of that that keeps me going, right? Just love of the institution too, because I can see not just the role it played in my life, which has of course been huge, but that it play, also plays that role in other people's lives. And you see that you see the new cohorts of students come. And even if, you know, we like to say we, especially in the MA and PhD program, that we grow Christian scholars one by one by one. And to see that sort of operate in people's lives and to see it take hold of, of them in a, in a good way, in a positive way, that can give you a lot of juice as a, as, um, you know, some, uh, to keep you going. Um, I got to, when we, when ICS started this research center in 2010, 
and I started to direct it in 2012. Then I got to uh, explore, uh, I sort of took it in the direction of community-based research or participatory action research, which is not so much having a defined research project as it is creating a space for people uh, beyond academia to talk about important social issues, right? And then seeing what the result of that is, but you don't necessarily direct it or steer it or, um, you know, you, you do kind of orient it and pick the questions and things like that. So. But so we did this project called uh, Justice and Faith in the Christian Reformed Church, where we worked in partnership with the Christian Reformed Church in Canada to um, do kind of like a community-based research project on how uh, Christian Reformed people understand the relationship between faith and justice. Like, is there a consensus? Is there differences? Um, do they have? Do they support in general the social justice ministries that the uh, CRC has going, like the Office of Social Justice and World Renew and all these things? And so we created, you know, we did uh, did a survey. We had focus groups and interviews and things like that. And then we developed a play, a one act play, and we sort of had that performed in several cities across Canada. And they have to have a um, kind of a facilitated dialogue afterwards. And then to see where you've sort of gathered people together, um, presented something that was really artistically well done, in order to generate a really interesting discussion about a topic that's really important to have been a part of that whole thing was really really um was it was illuminating to me how much i enjoyed that or how much i got from that or how much sort of satisfaction how much energy you know it was really really cool great well um thanks for coming in and talk to us today um no props anytime we'll see you around <laughs> yeah for sure keep up the good work oh thank you <laughs> And that brings us to our last segment this week, and our favorite segment every week, What's Your Pleasure? This is where we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun. The movies and television shows we're watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So Mark, what's your pleasure? Um, Well, my pleasure is going to be um, more poetry, of course. This one comes... Hits me close to home, though, because one of my fellow Sad Boys, actually the founder of the Sad Boys, just released um, a chapbook of poetry. Uh, chapbook. It's like this new uh, movement of self-publishing where you'll publish books with like 20 pages in them. So they're like mini books. Um, they're kind of like tracks of poetry. Um, and so it's kind of um, a new thing that people are doing. Um, and it's, it's pretty fun and cheap to do. Um, and you can do that by yourself. Like he sews his own books and stuff, which is cool. Yeah. So anyways, so his name's Ben Robinson and the chat book, which you can order, um, if you're in Canada, it costs $7 and 50 cents. That's including shipping. And if you are international, $9 and 50 cents, including shipping. And it is entitled mumbles in Hollywood, California. And the, I'll tell you a little bit about it. So his process was he went on to YouTube and turned on the auto captioning function of, and went on to random videos that were like speaking in tongues or um, people doing things that wouldn't caption very well. And then Google tries to like, 
put what words it thinks fits those sounds. Um, and so he took those sounds and or those words and made poems out of them. Um, and so that's what Mumbles in Hollywood, California is about. Uh, mine, I'm encroaching on your poetry territory. Encroach away. <laughs> My uh, pleasure fairly, well, for the last little while, I've been going through a book of poems very slowly because unlike you, poetry is not a regular form or part of my life. So, it's Well, just as I said before, life is poetry. Life so is poetry. It must be regular. There we go. I have no excuses anymore. Um, but one of our, well, Grace, actually, mm -hmm. one of our other ICS junior members uh, lent me this book of poems by a name that I'm going to butcher. Wisława Zimborska. Okay. It's a Polish poet. Sounds Polish. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a collection of all of her poetry. Well, not all of it, I think. Some of it. And there's just one that stuck out to me and has stuck out to me for a little hmm. while. And I kind of just want to read it for read you Read away. Read away. Okay. It's called, well, it's obviously a translated poem, so. Grain of salt. Yeah, grain of salt. Uh, it's called An Unexpected Meeting. We treat each other with exceeding courtesy. We say, it's great to see you after all these years. Our tigers drink milk, our hawks tread the ground, our sharks have all drowned, our wolves yawn beyond the open cage, our snakes have shed their lightning, our apes their flights of fancy, our peacocks have renounced their plumes, the bats flew out of our hair long ago. We fall silent in mid-sentence, all smiles past help, our humans don't know how to talk to one another. Hmm. And I just really like that, especially that last line of like, our humans don't know how to talk to one another. For some reason, it has stuck yeah. with me for like weeks and weeks and weeks. And I just like went back to it again the other day and reread it. I was like, yeah, it's so good. <laughs> it's strange that use of our there. Yeah. You know, it reminds me of, do you know Japanese Breakfast? No. Japanese Breakfast is this like um, band from Portland or something. Um, and they do like hard to explain anyways <laughs> they they there's this one song called um till death and and one of the lines is uh all all our celebrities keep dying <laughs> anyway i just thought oh, that was so strange like why are they our celebrities in the same way that like why yeah. is it our humans yeah. you know and then that, that that makes me that makes me think a lot yeah well, it's because uh, like throughout the poem, it's like all these animals. So it makes it kind of seem like a zoo mm -hmm. of sorts where it's like we have all these creatures that we have and they've stopped kind of doing what they're supposed to be doing and or what they're, you know, supposedly like best at. And then for that, it's humans and they're not knowing how to talk to each other. It's like just gets me, gets me right in the heart. And that brings us to the end of our show this week. If you would like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics, and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can visit us at icscanada.edu. If anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith@icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can find Ron as at KuypersRonald. You can follow my co-host as at BewareTheYeti. And me as at Mark Standish. You can also follow ICS as at INSCHR. And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. 
If you like what you heard, subscribe to us on iTunes and consider giving us a review. It helps people find us and keeps us on the radar. Most importantly, tell your friends. Bye.